When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Agendi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of, the, day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when, he, and when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man find his, finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Trenton asked me, what's the passage today? I said, it's 1 Samuel chapter 24, and he goes, well, what verses? I said, no, the whole chapter. <laughs> so apologies. I just, it's a narrative. So hopefully you followed it. We're going to unpack it here. But before we dive into this passage, I want to begin with one more word of prayer. So bow with me. Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts 
Be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And in the oldest prayer of the church, I pray, come Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to see many of you back here. Um, I had someone during the passing of the peace come up to me and they they said, we have people from the 11 o'clock invading the 9 a.m. service. And... (laughs) Because last week, the the 9 a.m. was rather empty, and it's rather full this week. So 11 a.m.ers, welcome to the 9 a.m. service. Um, We did have one family show up at 8 for service. Um, I don't see them. I'm not going to call them out by name. But they were on it with their kids, and then they left. And great shame. (laughs) This fall, we've been working our way through the life of David, King David. So whether you're someone who grew up in the church or not, hopefully you've heard of this famous king, King David of Israel. Uh, David and Goliath, we've looked at that. We've, we've looked at facing giants. We've, we've looked at facing darkness. We've looked at having friends, lasting friendship. This week, it's one of those passages that often you just kind of want to skip over because it can be hard to interpret and understand. But the title of our sermon is Facing Our Enemies. But before we dive into the passage, let me ask a reflective question. How was your Halloween? How was your Halloween? Uh, Let me tell you how my Halloween was. Uh, I live on the south end of DI, and if you've ever been to the Magic Kingdom during the opening bell, it's kind of like that. There's a lot of jostling for candy, people elbowing, it's crazy, even adults. And um, I was picking up our giant son who's 14 over here. We were running late and I, I, I was weaving through kids and getting home at like 7. Supposedly the trick-or-treating started at 6. Who knew? But it started early and, and my wife, as soon as I got home, she ditched me. She ditched me. She, she, she went walking around the neighborhood and uh, she left a basket with candy and it said like take two pieces of candy. Now let's be honest. Does that work? And it doesn't work. It worked for a little bit. And you see how devious people are, right? You, these little munchkins, they're like two pieces. And they're like, you know, even like the three-year-olds, they're like bagging the candy. And sure enough, I finally got this. And I look, and I'm looking out there, and I see the Nortons and some other families from our church. And I'm like, hey, guys. And they're like, where's your candy? I was like, what do you mean, where's my candy? And I looked, and the basket or the bucket was empty. And Heather, in the most loving way, she says to me, listen, if you don't have candy and you say you have candy, that means you're giving permission to have your egg, your house egged later in the evening. And so I said, oh, no. So there's all these kids from our church, and I was feeling guilt-stricken, so I, I projected that onto the kids, right? Uh, I said to the kids, I don't know if I have any more candy, but... If you were loving, maybe you'd, they had sacks of candy, pounds like this, like, you know. And I said, it might be a good idea for you to empty some of your candy into our bucket so the other kids coming by uh, might have candy. I'm going to go call Miss Carly to see if we have more candy. I was joking, of course, right? They didn't take it as a joke. I didn't know the pastor had so much power. I walk out. I walk out, you cutie, you're sitting there and, and, and with your great servant and, service and sacrifice. She's emptying her, her bag. And it was half full. It was half full. And I was like, no, no. And I found more candy. I don't know if that's good or bad. So they took their candy back. But thanks for your servant heart. 
Miss Norton. You see, Halloween was a lot of fun for us, and also it was full of a lot of fear, wasn't it? Some of the families from our church, they're like, hey, this is cute. You know, some of us obviously don't partake in Halloween. We're not getting into that today. But some of us, it's a lot of fun. Some, it's a lot of fear. In fact, around my block, there is this witch. And there's this witch with a black hat. There's several witches in this one house. <laughs> and they have a veil. They have a veil. And my wife's walking towards the bank's house. And uh, you know it's a human person. But they lift their head and scream, ah! And my wife, she, of course, ah! So she tells me about this. And then, and then she comes back, and, and we hang out. And then she's like, you know, let's go back down to our neighbor's house. And we're walking by, and the witch is there. And I'm like, she told me about the witch. The witch does it, ah! And my wife goes, ah! Right? She's like, anyways, she's, she's uh, really reactive. And, uh, you know, the thing about Halloween is I was thinking about Halloween and thinking about our passage you know, it's a lot of fun, and it it's actually stokes a lot of fear. And perhaps this is life for many of us in our day-to-day living. You know, perhaps, you know, things are going well, and then darkness sets in. You're like, this doesn't make sense. Especially us living in Charleston, the number one city in the world, the, the, in the cosmos, supposedly. Like, you know, like, we've won all these awards, and but... When, when darkness sets in and, and, and opposition sets in, we don't know what to do with it, do we? So what do we do with darkness? What do we do with our adversaries and our enemies? I think the big idea of our passage is this. Facing opposition in life is a given. Facing opposition in light of God's sovereignty is divine. Let me repeat that. Facing opposition in life is a given, yet facing opposition in light of God's sovereignty is divine. We're going to unpack this with three points over the next few minutes. In the face of opposition, point number one, the wise person lives by faith. The foolish person lives by force. Point number two, the wise person calls for justice. The foolish person rushes to judgment. And point number three, the wise person trusts the truth, and the foolish person flees from the truth. So let's dive into our passage. Point number one, in the face of opposition, the wise person lives by faith, and the foolish person lives by force. We heard these words from a passage. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. So let's look at the context for just a minute. What's been happening in the life of David? Who's Saul? Well, in a nutshell, um, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, they were longing for a king. In fact, they kind of rejected God as king. They said, no, we want an earthly king. So they got this strapping, handsome, strong guy named Saul. And they said, we want him to lead us. And so in 1 Samuel, in the first half of Samuel, it's about Saul's leadership and frankly, his failure in leadership. He would turn and long to hear the kind of the accolades of the people instead of obeying God. And finally, God says, enough. And with great irony, he finds this little shepherd boy named David. And he says, That's the future king. 
And so in the middle of the book of 1 Samuel, David's anointed kings. And in the Old Testament, kings weren't given a crown. They were given a head of oil. They were anointed. And David was anointed, and yet Saul was still in his position of power, having been anointed. And the story goes on. David has all these victories at battle. And he takes down the enemy, the big, the, the big enemy of Israel, Goliath. And he defeats the Philistines. And uh, the, the, the greater he grows in popularity, the more jealous Saul becomes. And it doesn't matter that David then ends up marrying one of Saul's own daughters. David is uh, chased by Saul over and over again, and Saul tries to kill him. And, and it even gets so bad, I don't know if some of you have done an intervention, there's uh, Saul's own kids, Jonathan and his daughter, uh, try to intervene for David, and he, he won't have any of it. So here in this passage, David is on the run for his life. We know that he's been called to lead for God, but just not yet. Okay, so that's the story thus far. Now here's the crazy thing. As Saul is chasing his ego, and he's chasing David into the wilderness, into the wild goat's rocks, or whatever they say, they're, the Philistines are surrounding Israel. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 23, he has to abandon his pursuit of David to defend his people. But then he kind of defends Israel, and then he goes back on the chase. I've been told some of you in here are like MMA fighters or, you know, your special force. Honest to God, I, uh, thank you. Um, I'm not that guy. But he takes 3,000, Saul takes 3,000 of his special forces and instead of defending his country, out of jealousy, he's pursuing David. And that's the picture here. It's madness. He's, he's been lost to his ego. You see, Saul was obsessed with power and had no paradigm for weakness. And yet we see a moment of weakness here as the passage goes on. It says, he, Saul, came to the sheep's fold, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in, to relieve himself. I don't know. I think the original language says he went to go potty. But that's what it's saying. Just keeping it real. Now David, now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. 600 men are hiding. It's like a great epic movie. They're hiding up in the rocks in the mountains. And, uh, and, and the men of David said to him, here's the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'll give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. In other words, you'll slay him. And David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe as he was going potty. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. So on one hand, Saul's obsessed with power and has no paradigm for weakness. And here's David in the back of the cave in darkness. And David trusts in God's power, not his own, even in his place of weakness. He doesn't force God's favor in this moment despite even his top gun saying, it's time for you to take action and take your place. He's like, no, I'm going to wait on the Lord. 
You know, in our day and age, we live in a fast-forward culture. Anyone here have a DVR? You know what that is? And I know we have some techies. Well, you know, the cool thing about DVRs for me is you don't have to watch the commercials. You can rec record your favorite show or your terrible football team, and you can fast-forward when they're doing really poorly. And uh, I've done a lot of that this year with the Buccaneers, <laughs> just confessing that. But last week, we're watching the Buccaneers blaze and I. And uh, in the middle of the day, all of a sudden, a commercial comes on, and it's horrific. It's one of these scary horror shows. At 2.30 in the afternoon on a Sunday, they're advertising for this as Halloween's forthcoming. And I'm sitting there like, fast forward, and I'm like, oh, I forgot. I'm watching it live, right? But, but draw that out into the bigger uh, kind of place in our lives. Don't we all wish that when darkness sets in and enemies start pursuing us, we just could hit fast forward? In fact, I would say our society is bent towards that, like skip over any darkness, any pain, any trial, right? You're meant for more, right? No, God is actually with David. And in the back of the cave, David is trusting in God and not hitting fast forward. And there's something beautiful that I noted here as I was studying the passage this week. Do you know, anyone read the book of Psalms, some of those Psalms where David's lamenting, crying out, giving praise? Do you know a lot of those Psalms, with all of their grit and grace, were written as David was on the run? What David would discover as he was on the run was that he wasn't just hiding in a rock. He was hiding in the Lord, my rock. Let me give you an example. Psalm 18 I love you, O Lord. This, he's writing this in the caves. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, uh, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield in the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to, to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies." So anytime you read in the Psalms of God being a rock, it's not just a metaphor, it's a reality. David is hiding in a rock from his enemies. So it was with him, and so it, God calls us to ourselves at times. Point number one, in the face of opposition, the wise person lives by faith and trusts by faith, whereas the foolish person lives by force, even if it's illogical, even if he leaves uh, his, his backside vulnerable. And later in 1 Samuel, because of his arrogance and his pride and his envy, Saul will die and David will rise. Point number two, in the face of opposition, the wise person calls for justice and the foolish person rushes to judgment. After David uh, also arose and went out of the cave uh, and called after Saul, my lord the king, and when Saul looked behind him, David bows with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks you harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. Some told me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. You know, at just the right time and in just the right way, David actually does confront Saul. And we are to do the same with our enemies, with those who are opposing us. 
but he does it in the right, right time and in the right way. Three components of his confrontation. And for those who struggle with confrontation, kind of perk up and listen up. Point, what he does first, he respects Saul. He says, my Lord, he, later, my father. He, he doesn't just cut him down. He actually affirms him and affirms his leadership. And he bows down in great respect. And then he issues grace and he says, hey, you deserve this. You've been doing, trying to kill me, throwing spears and this and that. But I've just cut a little sliver of your robe and I did not cut you down. But then here's the truth, Saul. You need help. And God's the only one at this point that can intervene. So that's David's manner of confrontation. And Saul's manner is just the opposite. I underline these words. I will not put my hand against you. Um, because the last time that exact language was used in 1 Samuel 22. Let me help tell you how dark sin can get. How dark envy can get. Saul is pursuing David. David at one point in this, you know, fleeing from Saul had taken refuge in a church. In a city called Nob. And in, in, in with the high priest, Emelech. And all these priests, and they cared for him, and they didn't know everything going on. Saul finds out that these men of God cared for David. And he goes and he confronts them. In fact, he orders with this same language, not that their arms, that his soldiers would put their arms down like David did, but he says, I want you to kill every single one of them. And ironically, None of the Israelites will do this. And so a foreigner named Doeg, the Edomite, ends up striking down the men of God and the people of God. Eighty-five priests are struck down as Saul rushes to judgment that day. It's a really nasty story. You know, one path, David's path, calls for life. One path takes life. David would go on to say, May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So just to pause real quick, how are you at handling confrontation? Are you someone that avoids confrontation and just flees? Or the right time can speak up with great respect, affirmation, grace in the truth? Are you someone that often will puff up and lash out? And maybe you're not calling for someone to die, but you're crushing someone with your words. I think this passage really is a beautiful passage for us to reflect on, not just in this moment, but later in the week. 1 Samuel chapter 24 how we're to lovingly, in a God-centered way, confront one another when things go awry. So point number two, in the face of opposition, the wise person calls for justice, which is what David does. The foolish person rushes to judgment. And then point number three, in the face of opposition, the wise person trusts the truth as the fourth person flees from the truth. They, Saul, after being confronted, uh, says, Is this your voice, my son David? And David lifted up his voice, excuse me, and Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I. You've repaid me good, yada, 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 right? 
And it says he starts weeping, my son David, you're right, I'm wrong. Okay? Let me ask, does Saul acknowledge the truth in this moment? He, he does, with his head. Does he express emotion about the truth in this moment? He, he does. He starts weeping, oh, oh, my son David, how I've wronged you. But I would argue it's tears of self-pity. Why? Because does David, excuse me, does Saul change by way of the truth? And the answer is an emphatic no. In fact, he gets so egocentric, he says, David, swear to me. They're now across kind of a valley. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me. You will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swears to Saul. And Saul went home. And David and his men went up to the stronghold. You see, despite David's loving confrontation, Saul does not change. He flees. And despite Saul's oppressive leadership, David doesn't pursue. He waits. I want us to catch this, especially some of us who've been in some rough relationships with opposition. Despite David's loving confrontation, Saul does not change. He just moves on. Even though he acknowledges the truth, he cries, he doesn't change. Read the rest of the book, it's an ugly ending for Saul. He doesn't, in the New Testament, the word is repent. He doesn't turn and trust God or make amends with David. And despite this, David still waits for God to act. He doesn't rush to act. This has been one of the harder sermons I've had to prepare in a while. Because just a few weeks ago, some people that I've had some rough goes with in my life have popped back up. And these are not people that are far from the church. These are people in the church and actually leaders in the church. People that I've seen have kind of dark character, do some dark things. And, and there was a confrontation a few years back that I and other leaders had with these select leaders. And guess what? They never changed. In fact, what's crazy is they've been promoted in ministry. What am I to do with that? What are we to do with that? Here's the reality. This is good news and terrible news. Sometimes when you're living with God, you're going to face opposition. I think it's a given. You're going to do the best intervention you can do. You're going to do the best confrontation you can do. Call out to God, call out to them. They're going to maybe respond. But it doesn't mean they're going to change. This side of heaven. And the question is, will you take matters into your own hands and become then like Saul? Or will you wait upon the Lord, my rock, my salvation, my fortress, my refuge? See, point number three, in the face of opposition, the wise person trusts or waits in the truth. And the foolish person actually flees from the truth. So in summary, facing opposition in life's a given. Facing opposition in light of God's overarching care and power is divine. To close, I want to share a story about Corey Tinboom. Corey Tinboom, some of you may have read her book, The Hiding Place. If you've not, 
It's a must read. It's fantastic. Corey and her family, they're from the Netherlands. Uh, and they were living there as World War II started. And the Nazis invaded the Netherlands. And they took over the Netherlands. And they were, if you know history, they're putting to death people with mental disabilities and Jewish people and more. And they're rounding people up. And if you created safe havens for these people, you too would face, face death. You'd face a concentration camp. And yet, um, Corey and her family uh, had a heart for broken people and needy people. In fact, they were Calvinists. They were in the Dutch Reformed Church, and they were even running a youth group prior to the war for people in need. And uh, the war starts in, uh, in 1940. The uh, Netherlands gets taken over. In 1942, they get a knock at their door. And it's a Jewish person looking for safe harbor, safe passage through the tin booms, through their family. And less than a block away was a German outpost. They ended up taking the person in. They took in tons of people in this same way, risking everything. They ended up building out a room in their house that was like a false room so that they could hide when the Germans would come. But it all came crashing down in 1944 when an insider, a native, gave them up. And Corey and her dad and sister and others were arrested and thrown in concentration camps. Her dad immediately died within 10 days. They would move her from concentration camp to concentration camp. And in late, so this is beginning in 1944, in late 1944, her own sister Betsy died kind of right with her in Ravensbrück, a concentration camp. I think it was something like a few days after that she was released. Later it would be discovered that she was accidentally released and all the women her age were, I think, gassed or killed within a few weeks of her release. So she's released. She spends the rest of her life not building a home, but building a call, a ministry of forgiveness and reconciliation, bringing the gospel to over 60 nations around the world. Finally, near the end of her life, someone in California offers her a nice home to stay in when she's 85 years old. A friend comes to her and says, Corey, isn't God so good for giving you this home? And she said, with a, kind of a calm and directness back, God was good to me even in Ravensbrook. God is good to you. God is good to me. God is good to us. Whatever we're facing, whatever oppression adversary we're facing today, that's what we learn from Corey Tinpoom, and that's what we learn from King David, even in the caves of Israel. So three calls to action. In the face of opposition, I'd say number one, I invite all of us to begin living more and more by faith, especially when the lights go out, especially when um, you're being pursued. Point number two, Cry out, call out for justice. Don't rush to judgment. And this is true, let's be real. We really need this in our own families, that we're not rushing to judgment and cutting each other down. Ironically, David lifts up Saul in front of God in prayer. In point number three, 
Trust in the truth. Wait in the truth that God is with you and for you. You fast forward. How do we know this? Not just in this passage. You look at the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. After he rose and he gives the new call to the disciples saying, take this message to the very ends of the earth. You know what he leaves them with? For I am with you now and forever. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you, friends, live with this and believe this truth? Let's pray. I'm going to close with the serenity prayer. Some of you who are in AA or NA might know it. And I just invite you to hear it and pray it uh, silently with me. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway of peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. Amen.